Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Have a traffic tip? Call WWL at 504-260-INFO. Thank you, Courtney. Enjoy your birthday. Now, back to Tommy Tucker on WWL. Your lies four weeks from today be the Saturday after Mardi Gras. Wednesday after Mardi Gras? What did I say? Saturday. No, what I meant was... I guess I'm looking at the date. I messed myself up there, That's thinking okay. January 25th instead of weeks. But you're right. It would be today's the Ash one, Wednesday, one two, three, four. That's what it is. Be Ash Wednesday, Dave. Thank you. Well, where the hell does Saturday come in? Tim, <laughs> what are you talking about? Where did, why did you tell me that? Where does that come from? <laughs> Tim sitting in there, just just uh, Lisa saying, you know, I didn't say a word. What are you talking about? Exactly. But I don't know. I messed myself up there. I got a little bit too big for my britches, too smart. But anyway, four weeks from today, it's coming up, and a, a, a change to author Hardy's Mardi Gras guide. Nefertiti was in on the 22nd. you got to change that with a pencil to the 29th. You ever had one of those days where... Um, I figured out what you did, though. The 25th of February is a Saturday. That's what I was looking at, yeah. Right, but four weeks from today... Would be Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Yeah, which means that Mardi Gras is coming up. The 21st. You ever had one of those days where you feel like, um, oh, I don't know, like the world is uh, is a... PC and your your Apple based. You ever have one of those days? <laughs> Square peg, round hole. Yeah, like, just yes, right. like, yes. running, like the world is is uh, is Microsoft, whack. and I'm running an uh, an Apple program here, and it just seems like anyway. Thank you both. Happy birthday, Courtney. Have a great Thank day. You. Feel better, Tommy. No, I feel fine. I, you know, I need a big plate of pancakes. Greg Upton joins us now, associate research professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. Can I get an amen on that, Greg? Big old plate of pancakes. <laughs> I'll take it. Amen. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Greg is the associate research professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. Oil and gas, a big deal for Louisiana. A lot of people make their livelihood that way. And we thought we'd take a look at the the year ahead and what 23 portends for oil and gas in Louisiana. So, Greg, good morning. Happy New Year. I don't know if we've spoken or not. Happy New Year. Good to chat with you, Tommy. Good to talk to you. And I'm sorry you missed, I missed you. Uh, Greg was in town a while back. Tell me about... Um, the outlook and the Biden administration and the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Biden, not very friendly to oil and gas. Does this make any difference? Walk us through all of this, Professor. Yeah, sure. So whenever we think about the oil and gas industry in Louisiana, we kind of put it into two buckets. The first is what we call the upstream oil and gas extraction and services sectors. And that you think about someone like actually drilling a well, you know, producing oil and natural gas from the ground. So I think that's what most people think about when they think about oil and gas. 
The second bucket is the processing, manufacturing of those hydrocarbons and the products that we use every day. So think about gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. Um, you could also think about plastics, chemicals, fertilizers, all of these things that we use in our daily lives that are uh, initially come from oil and gas that's produced from the ground. So, uh, you know, to give the outlook, a little bit of historical context is useful in the upstream oil and gas extraction and services part of the sectors. You go back to pre-2014 price crash, and we actually employed over 50,000 workers in that part of the sector in Louisiana. When the price crash happened in late 2014, early 2015, we lost almost 20,000 of those workers. Wow. It was really, really uh, draconian for the sector. Um, in fact, the U.S. economy was still growing at that time, and this actually put Louisiana into a little bit of a recession. Um, you know, we started coming back a little bit, but, you know, gained a few of those jobs back, but nowhere near the peak that we had, had seen at 50,000. And then, of course, COVID hits. And there we lost almost 9,000 workers in that sector. So we're down 29,000 about? Yeah, about there. So we're, we're about half of what we were um, today relative to the pre-2014 price crash in the 25,000 range. We are hit by so many things so quickly. Let's go back and talk about it doesn't seem like it was that long ago where people were paying other people to store oil, let alone pay per right. barrel, right? So how, how did that come about? What were the market forces that caused that to happen? Well, so if you think back to the pandemic, and I know everyone's got their own story, uh, you know, the day before the pandemic, I remember I was I had a meeting in Houston, and I was flying there, and there's all this talk of this, you know, coronavirus at the time, and I call a friend of mine who is a medical doctor and actually works for the state in public health, was watching this extremely closely, and I call him, and I say, uh, David, you know, I've got this meeting in Houston tomorrow. Uh, you know, I've got a flight there. Should I just go ahead and drive? It's only, you know, four and a half hours or so. And he said, ah, Greg, you know, I think you're being a little too cautious. Go ahead and, you know, go to your meeting, take your flight. I said, okay, that's great. Um, literally the next day when I'm in the air coming back, flying into New Orleans, that is when Trump makes the announcement that, you know, we're shutting down travel internationally. The next day my kids didn't go to daycare. Everything in the world shut down. And so what did that do to the demand for liquid fuels? Well, they, it reduced extremely, extremely quickly. And so all the oil and gas wells that we're producing, of course, they're going to continue to produce. And demand was reduced so fast that what you ended up with was this glut of oil and nowhere to put it. And as a result, you actually had some days where uh, oil was trading at negative prices, meaning people would, take, would pay you to take the oil just because they didn't have a, a place to store it. And, of course, that significantly impacted drilling. Companies, you know, stopped drilling immediately, and that's really what created that, that you know, big reduction in jobs that we saw. So moving forward, is it embrace clean energy? Is it take advantage of the opportunities there? Is it continue to try to grow oil and gas while we continue to grow the other types of energy? Explain all of that, if you will, please. Yeah, sure. So the kind of good news is that while we've seen this reduction in upstream oil and gas employment, we've actually seen growth in the refining and chemical manufacturing sector, this, this uh, manufacturing of these products and shipping them all over the world. And so while we did lose some about 2,000 jobs in um, refining and, and what we call petrochemical during the pandemic, 
uh, we're actually gaining those back now, and we've seen a decade of growth in those sectors, and we anticipate that over the next year or so we'll actually surpass that pre-pandemic peak and continue to grow. So the first area is, again, that refining chemical manufacturing that we're, uh, that is seeing employment growth. The other thing that's really exciting to see right now is all of the investments in, uh, in decarbonization. So examples of that is carbon capture, where we take the carbon dioxide emissions out of these facilities and, and capture it permanently in the ground. We're seeing lots of investment in renewable energy, such as solar energy right now across the state. We're also seeing some wind projects coming to fruition. There's also uh, several projects associated with biofuels, and that's where you can create oil, uh, or you, I'm sorry, you create liquid fuels like gasoline out of plant-based products instead of oil. Um, there's also discussion of, of using hydrogen and ammonia in order to produce energy instead of oil and gas. And so the amount of options that we have uh, for energy here in Louisiana is really, really, really vast. And so what I'm really hopeful for is that the energy sector and aggregate is able to grow in the coming decades um, because of all these opportunities that are out there. All right, let me take a break. Uh, Greg, I will say this. If you're getting from, well, maybe Baton Rouge to Houston, you were saying, in three and a half hours. If you're going from New Orleans to Houston in three and a half hours, you're driving like Tommy Tucker. I'll tell you that right now. Um, <laughs> I think I did make. I did, I think I did. think actually make it back from Houston in three and a half hours one time. Don't, but, don't tell us that, Tommy. Yeah, don't, don't do this at home. Don't, gotta, I'm a trained sun driver. You just had a policeman on the, yes. uh, the line. You're going to get a ticket here. Don't try this at home. I'm a trained stunt driver. All right, we'll take a break, come back, talking oil and gas with Greg Upton, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. If you have any questions or comments, 504-260-1870. If you work in oil and gas, I'd like to know where you are in all of this, especially as Greg talks about decarbonization and that being the wave of the future. It's coming, so do you want Louisiana to try to cash in on that, and how do we? Back in a flash, WWL. 922, talking to Greg Upton, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies, our friend, our go-to guy. When it comes to oil and gas, um, somebody texted, first off, uh, let me ask you a question about the jobs, the, the, about half the jobs that we had in when, Greg, did you say the time frame? I took notes, but I can't uh, read my writing. Yeah, between about, you go like 2014 um, to today, we have about half the jobs in, in that specific upstream oil and gas extraction and services. Sector. These jobs were paying on an average? Uh, probably about 80 to 90K. That's a pretty good job. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Where, where did these jobs go or did they just cease to exist? Well, when the 2014 price crash happened, and that was really the larger of the two, um, as I mentioned, it actually put Louisiana into a bit of a recession. So a lot of these people, when they got laid off, they didn't get another job immediately. Um, did and they, I guess what I'm asking, did, did they move out of state? Did they move to north Louisiana to work with shale, or do you know? Is there any way to track that? Yeah, it's very difficult to know. Um, mm -hmm. I know that broadly speaking, a lot of people, whenever they left that industry that you know you talk to anecdotally, yeah. um, they went and got a job in another sector. And whenever oil prices come back and drilling activity is increasing, what they'll tell you is, is look, you know, I'm just not going back to that sector. I've got a job now. It doesn't pay as much as my oil and gas job did. But it's more stable, and you know I don't have to worry about that that downturn. So I would say most state and state, but you know people go. I just saw firsthand in Plaquemines when they closed the refinery, some people lost their houses, had truck notes, and you know some of these big trucks are like crazy, um, and they, they didn't realize that that the 
that they were lose their job in the refinery, they did. And it's it's not easy to go from that when your house note and truck note, et cetera, is dependent on that salary and then go take a job in the, in the service sector or something because you can't just start making half the money you made, right? Yeah, that's really difficult. And the other thing, a lot of those jobs at, a you know, like a refinery like that, those workers can likely get another job at another industrial facility mm-hmm. because we've seen really growth. But a lot of times it's not going to be in the same location. And right. so if you have a lot of people going and selling their houses at the same time, then you can end up with a case where you're underwater in your mortgage um, because those housing values decline. So, yeah, it's it's tough on people. There's no doubt. What, what is a shale play? Why do they call it a play? What does that mean? <laughs> okay, so shale play. Um, so there are these formations I, I think a big shale. I think a big Texas oilman sitting around with cigars saying, well, I got that Haynesville <laughs> shale play and whatever. Is that, I mean, how do they get outcome with these names? You know, oil and gas is, is full of uh, fun names yeah. <laughs> that are just kind of, you know, specific uh, to the industry for sure. So shale is a, is a very specific kind of rock formation, and we've known about an enormous amount of hydrocarbons within shale formations for decades and decades, but we have not known how to economically extract those. And so if you go back to the early 2000s, mid-2000s, that's where we really learned how to extract from these shale formations in the first place. And when this technology came out, many companies rushed to lease these areas and start producing. And that's why you call it kind of a play, where it's this phenomenon that occurs where there's this new resource there and everyone kind of there's a flurry of activity that rushes to that area to, uh, you know, to take advantage of it. So that's kind of the, the informal term for it. Well, along those lines, somebody texted in and they texted me yesterday about this. Is the Tuscaloosa shale play in southeast Louisiana dead? What is it and is it alive or dead? Yeah, so the Tuscaloosa Marine Shale has been uh, a discussion actually for several decades, and you know you'll you'll kind of get this resurgence of of optimism with it. There were a few wells that were drilled. There certainly are hydrocarbons there. I think the constraint that I was told by uh, you know several people working was that the there was a whole lot of water that came out with that oil, and the wells were a little bit more expensive to drill than was anticipated. And so under current market conditions, it's probably not going to um, you know, become a, a big thing right now. Mm-hmm. That said, I believe one day – I don't know when that day will be. It might be in 20 or 30 years from now. The TMS will likely be uh, taken advantage of, and we'll see a boom in that area. It goes through central Louisiana and then kind of turns through uh, Mississippi and then up through the, the top of the toe of the boot there through the Felicianas and, and that area in the state. It'll happen one day, but probably not this year. Pivot, you know, is one thing if you're on a basketball court. It's another thing if you're a big corporation trying to pivot into a different sector. How easy or hard is it going to be for oil and gas companies or even service companies to pivot into this decarbonization industry in Louisiana? And is that the future? Whether you like it or not, this is what's coming, so you better get ready and try to monetize it and make some money off of it. So is it the future? I think it is. Um, I think what we've seen the Paris Accord, we've seen over 95% of global GDP represented in the Paris Accord of, of countries saying across the world that we want to reduce our carbon emissions. And global corporations respond to that rationally and pragmatically. And you know there are companies now that are requiring for all their suppliers 
that they document in a credible way what their carbon emissions are. And those are increasingly being taken into account in supply chain decisions, but also in terms of, you know, there's discussion of tariffs and border adjustments and those kind of things whenever, you know, at a governmental level. And so what we've seen here in Louisiana is, is these companies responding to this. And we've seen companies respond from the largest companies in the world, whether it be the Exxons and the Shells. And we've also seen small companies responding to this, trying to understand what is their carbon emissions and how can they have that comparative advantage. What I'll tell you is in Louisiana, we have a lot of things going for us in this transition. Um, first of all, because we have a regulatory environment that's been here for a long time that has been cognizant of environmental implications relative to other parts of the world, quite candidly, I think when the accounting is done, what you'll find is that we're a very low-carbon intensive uh, area for the products that we produce. And if you, you know, take a gallon of gasoline that's produced here in the Gulf Coast, I think the carbon intensity of that is going to be way lower than a lot of other parts of the world. And so kind of in the short run, it really gives you that comparative advantage. The other big advantage that we have is we have a regulatory structure set up to allow for the permitting of these very, very large projects in the decarbonization space. And that's the really big discussion that I hear going on right now is how do we move forward with these different technologies? How can we really be the global leaders in decarbonizing that energy sector? And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of risks involved in it, certainly. But personally, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic. I think if you're reading the tea leaves, and I can't imagine myself ever driving an electric vehicle, not that I have anything against them, it just... You know, I guess I'm old school, Greg, and I, if it if you don't put gas in it, you don't start it up, you don't hear anything, um, it, it just would freak me out, I guess. But if you look at the manufacturers and the trends and where they're going, there's no doubt that that is the future, correct? You know, for EVs, it's uh, it's a little bit more ambiguous to me. Okay. Uh, you know, they're... There's I'm just going by the advertising I see. I haven't bought yeah. a, uh, purchased a vehicle since 2014, but it just seems like that is the trend, and and auto right. manufacturers try to get d- a decade ahead of what's going on, right? Definitely. You know, so I think that EVs have a lot of things going for them. First of all, electric vehicles have lower maintenance, okay? They just have less moving parts and those kind of things. Also, just because of the physics of how electric vehicles work, If you produce energy in a power plant, that is going to be way, way, way more efficient than producing that in a small engine within your vehicle. So for people, let me jump in, Greg, for people that Mm -hmm. say, well, guess where that electricity is coming from? It is maybe being produced by fossil fuels, but a lot less carbon being put into the atmosphere. Is that what you're saying? Oh, definitely. I mean, if you look in that, sure, if you were in an area that had 100 percent coal power generating electricity, Probably the electric vehicle would not uh, reduce emissions relative to gasoline. Mm -hmm. But here in Louisiana, where you've got a lot of natural gas and increasingly we're going to see a lot of investment in solar, Um, we also have some nuclear here. Yeah, it's definitely going to reduce emissions in that. Okay. Um, So getting back to what you said about uh, EVs and uh, how did you phrase it? You're not as... Uh, maybe um, I forgot exactly what you said, but the future of EVs, let's put it that way, and, and um, internal combustion engines on vehicles. What do you think? So it's a trade-off, and I'm not quite convinced that, oh, EVs are the future. Now, I think they have a high probability of competing in the future, but there's, there's a trade-off 
to think really? about. So on the benefit side to EVs, they are way more efficient in terms of the usage of energy. You can go more miles on less energy. Um, they also have lower maintenance costs. So those are big benefits. On the cost side, EVs, of course, right now are more expensive, and that's likely to be the case into the future. And whenever you take into account the fuel savings and the maintenance savings, when you run these cost-benefit, it still is just more expensive today than having that uh, internal combustion engine. But the biggest Achilles heel to me with an electric vehicle is, and I've timed it, I can fill up my midsize sedan that's you know not brand new, it's 10 years old. That you drive like hell and get to Houston in three and a half hours. Go ahead. That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. I, I've timed it. I can fill it up in two minutes and go 500 miles. Right. There's just no EV that you can do that with. Um, you know, if you're going to drive any long distance, if you're someone that drives a lot, all of a sudden you have to think about logistics of, okay, when am I going to charge? It takes longer to charge and those kind of things. And so, you know, look, if you're putting back and forth to work every day, going a few miles, I think it's definitely something that is someone could look at. But in terms of replacing that kind of family sedan that you go on road trips with, with an electric vehicle, that's a little bit harder to imagine um, you know, under the current technologies that we have. And there's a huge infrastructure concern as well, is there not? Oh, definitely. We are investing billions and billions of dollars, not only in the charging infrastructure, but also in the electric grid. And so as we increase the demand for electricity, and if we move aggressively towards electric vehicles over the next, you know, several decades, um, we will start seeing big increases in the, the demand for electricity. You have to build that generation capacity. You have to build that transmission capacity that brings the, you know, the power to um, the local area. And then you have to build out what we call the distribution lines to actually bring it down to the actual vehicle. So those are all that are very costly things. And that's infrastructure that has to be built. So look into that Upton crystal ball that's been handed down from generation to generation. Will uh, <laughs> gasoline-powered vehicles be around 30 years from now? Absolutely. Okay. I'll wait then. I won't buy Absolutely. something today. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> A pleasure as Anytime. always, my friend. Stay in touch. All right, Greg Upton, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. And it surprises me to hear him say that because I guess it's a marketing push with the electric vehicles. I thought that was going to be... T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. 
Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 